Hi, Spark. Hi, everybody. We're live. So um, we're going to jump on into our sermon series, our continuation of When a Child Asks. I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark, and I'm super grateful to be with all of you. And I'm really happy that we can have a live sort of conversation regarding a lot of the questions that we're having. Um, again, this series was born out of some of us needing to answer questions of our own or answer questions of young ones or young people in the faith amongst us and trying to figure out how do we think about these things and are there ways to consider or ask the questions or answer the questions that maybe we have not experienced in the past or we'd like to have a fresh look at. So today our question is sort of where do we go when we die or a version of like sort of what is heaven like or where is it and how do we get there and who will be there? So I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of these questions pop at me from the back seat. Um, and if there's a different version of this question that you're hoping gets asked in our series, feel free to pop it on up in the chat here on YouTube Live, and we'll do our best to try to address that as we go through some of the information. Um, I've had that question pop up from a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, and in my life prior to Spark, um, when I was taking care and ministering to lots of different um, kiddos at a big children's ministry, these questions popped up then too. I think oftentimes they come up when somebody has passed away recently. Um, I know my great aunt passed away and we went to her services all prior to COVID. Um, and so questions came from that, right? Um, where is heaven? What happens when we die? How do we do this? It's great when it comes from the back seat while you're trying to negotiate traffic and drive down and, and do 22,000 other things. And then you're trying to figure out how do I explain this to a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old or on up? Um, and then I remember saying at one point, well, you know, here's what the Bible says and gave a variety of answers and scriptures, passages that this is what the Bible says, but I haven't been there. And I don't exactly know. I've, I, you're, you're asking somebody who's not, not, not passed away and I've not experienced whatever this next chapter might be. So everything that I know, I'm telling you from texts from the Bible of people who also hadn't been there. Um, and yes, the Bible, as Sidney talked about last week, inspired word of God, God breathed, um, but also with human authorship, right, as well. That combination of the, the word becoming flesh. So in all of that, um, in that middle of that question, I remember my little one saying, well, can we just ask Siri? Maybe Siri knows where heaven is and how to get there and what it's like. And And it's a funny question because, you know, you think, well, Sure, there should be some place where we can answer this with more um, def definitive information than my mom is giving me from the front seat of the car during rush hour traffic. So those questions from the back seat come, right? I think the questions also come when we are close to illness, when we're close to death and sickness, when we're trying to find a way out of the paper bag of suffering, when we're trying to figure out what's going on in our world and what answers might comfort us or bring comfort in those moments. I know that um, when someone I dearly loved was very, very sick and we were having to move in from the ER um, into the ICU and they were asking us, what are your religious preferences? Um, that question um, became deeply important. 
I am a Christian. There was like no if, ands, or buts about it. And the things that I believed that I knew um, very much were deeply important in that moment and came to the forefront of that surface. Um, but those questions aren't always as pressing. And a lot of times when we're just having more theological or intellectual debates uh, regarding the Bible, um, regarding what the Bible teaches, um, sometimes the waters get a little bit more murky than those very clear moments. The church has a long, varied history of viewpoints regarding this conversation. Um, from the early church, which of course, as we know at Spark, was an early uh, a Jewish movement and then moved into a predominantly Gentile movement of Christians who were following this Jesus, this Jewish Messiah Jesus. Um, in all of that, then people started trying to sort through what they believed was happening in the world when Jesus didn't come back as quickly as they thought that he was going to, and how to understand the, the ways in which all of this worked. In fact, many people, I think very quickly, um, we all tried to figure out some sort of mechanism for understanding and articulating uh, the suffering we saw in the world, the sickness that we saw in the world, uh, what we thought God's solution would be to that, um, the return of Christ, when Christ would return, and how we would get to participate in all of those things. Um, I think many of us grew up in contexts where it was a very clear salvation plan. And so heaven was like a great place that we all wanted to get to someday. And the way that we would get there would be by praying this particular prayer and saying these particular words, confession, confessing Christ. And then that would be our golden ticket into heaven. And I think that this type of um, mechanism of how to understand this can provide a lot of comfort, right? It, it's black and white. It tells us who's in and who's out. The people who said that prayer are in. The people who did not say that prayer are out. Um, and we can try to figure out, you know, the rest of our world around that. It also helps assuage a lot of guilt that we might have, right? I told that person about Jesus, so if they're going to not be in heaven forever, that's on them. So now I don't have to have any personal responsibility or feel any personal guilt regarding that that person's uh, forever destination or salvation. And instead, I can just um, wrap my mind back into the very clear sort of four steps or the four spiritual laws or the Romans road or the, the ABCs of salvation. And I'm not here at all today, this afternoon, saying that those things aren't true or that those aren't good tools um, in order to have this conversation. I think, though, the reason why a lot of this is so vigorously debated is because we see a lot of suffering in the world, because we see a lot of pain, and because death is just awful, right? We've clearly seen from the very beginning that it's not part of God's plan, and we rail against it. And so we want hope, right? Uh, N.T. Wright's fantastic book, Surprised by Hope, is a fantastic resource, resource on this. We want hope. We want to know that things will be better someday and that there's more to the world that we, than we see right now. The worrying about this, the debating it, the determining of the mechanics of who is in and out um, doesn't actually bring more of heaven here on earth, though. And it doesn't actually always bring more hope. At best, these debates give, give us perceptions of control, right? It, give us, it gives us a perception that we know something that's unknow unknowable, that is, in fact, unknown by humanity. Um, and then we seek to cry, try to just figure out the rest of our world based on those things. But see Siddhi's talk last week, um, this is actually not how the Bible works. A lot of times the people in the Bible who are telling us about 
salvation or about heaven or about God's final judgment and how the world will end or how the new heaven will come and all of that, they're using pictures to describe this reality. And when we take mechanisms and try to push those mechanisms on top of pictures, we're, ask, we're actually asking the Bible to do things that the Bible was not really truly created to do. And we can't expect mechanical answers from pictures. And T. Wright uses the example of Luke chapter 15, the parable of lost things, that that is a beautiful picture of God's redemptive love and pursuit of the lost and bringing them close and bringing the marginalized in. And even those who perceive themselves to be the best of the best are also on the margins. God is inviting them all in. But if we take mechanical questions and say, well, at what time did the, did the man show up? And at what point did they start to serve the meat? And at what we start to ask mechanical questions of that parable, that's not really what the parable is trying to answer or describe. Also, I'd just like to suggest that every attempt at trying to sort through how you get in and, and who gets in and who gets out and those mechanisms around it kind of fall apart at different places. At least they do for me. For example, if we said, well, very clearly, and it is true that the Bible says this, confess your faith in Jesus and you will be saved, right? That is, that is clear. We will do that and then we will be saved and we just don't have to worry anything else about it. Christ paid the price for us on the cross. We're saved. We get to go to heaven to the good place. Then I have some questions. What about the person who was born with a disability who is unable to articulate that? Does that mean that they won't be saved? And if that's the case, then haven't we then done the very thing that we said is not a Christ, a Christian platform, which is that we've made our faith a faith of works, our own works that get us in versus a faith that relies on the pure grace of Jesus. Or what happens to the people around on the other side of the globe the week after the resurrection? What happened to them? Are they responsible for that knowledge? And are they going to not get to go to the good place um, because they didn't confess that truth, but they would have not had any capacity for that truth? And then if you go to seminary, they'll say, well, then if you believe that ignorance allows somebody full opportunity to be able to go before God and they were never heard about Jesus, so therefore they're not responsible for that information, then wouldn't it be better if we never told anybody about Jesus at all because then they won't have to burn forever in hell. So like all of the mess of that um, starts very early to come in as we again try to bring about these perceptions of control. Even um, as you look at the awful church history of the Inquisition, when people were trying to figure out the heathen, and then if they were very angry with the heathen, then they would burn the heathen at the stake. The burning at the stake was done so that they would get a taste of the flames of hell in their last breaths and have a few more moments before they could confess their faith to God because they'd finally tasted the flames of hell that would be awaiting them. And so actually the burning of them at the stake was seen as a compassionate act to be able to move them into a confession of faith into glory. Um, that is a challenge, isn't it? So there are a variety of different viewpoints um, that Christians have throughout uh, history, um, whether Eastern Orthodox Christians having a very different view entirely, um, that heaven and hell aren't very physical places, but are states of being, and that heaven is 
is heaven. It's the same spot, but it's heaven for all the people who wanted to be there because they're with God. So it's paradise and that's what they wanted. But that is a hell for the people who wanted to be separated from God because now they're with God. See, there's all these different variety of interpretations and things as we go through. So I just want to acknowledge the fact that the subject itself is challenging and you can get in the weeds very quickly. And there's a variety of viewpoints within the Christian faith. All of this is to say that I actually don't think this is the story the Bible is telling. The Bible's not telling primarily a story about individuals who get in or out of heaven. The Bible is primarily talking about a creation rescue operation. And we see this from Genesis through Revelation, and particularly in the last chapters of Revelation, and we'll look at those in just a short bit. You see, we see that in the Bible, God is working at trying to, again, recreate and renew the creation, that we are made new creations in Christ in this process, and that ultimately, heaven will come crashing in to earth. That's the renewal that we see at the end of Revelation in Revelation 20, 21, 22. We see all of that ending, even beginning at 18, of what's going to happen with those who are doing terrible things, right? Um, that there's a justice that's coming, but that heaven comes crashing down into earth and there's a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So what we'd like to let you know is that for a long time now, Belinda Carlisle has been right and heaven is a place on earth. Get it? Anybody? Okay, sorry. Nobody else grew up in the 80s. Got it. Okay, so a lot of this, in all of this conversation of what's heaven like and do I get there and how does all this work and how where am I going to go after I die and all of this stuff comes to the question of why do you follow Jesus? Why do I follow Jesus? Are we following Jesus so that we can have a golden ticket into heaven? Is it so that we respond and we go, okay, this loving God who loves us desperately, who came and walked among us so that, so that the God of creation would have a face, so that we could see God in flesh, so we could be loved and love, and all of that beautiful story. Are we following Jesus just to get that golden ticket for salvation into heaven? I think question, the question is, do you and I follow Jesus because of who he is, because of how he loves us because of the relationship we can have with Jesus right now in the moment, presently in this moment, the resurrected person of Jesus with us. Do we follow Jesus for that? Do we follow Jesus for the relationship we have with him right now? Or do we follow Jesus for what we get from him, for what he can promise us for, for this golden ticket into heaven? I guess the question is, is our relationship with Jesus transactional? Or is it transformational? And my prayer is that our relationship with Jesus together collectively at Spark, as we work to bring more of heaven here on earth, as we continue to pursue a relationship with Jesus individually, independently, that the joy that comes from that relationship with Jesus right now is worth it all. And that if for some reason I found out tomorrow that there was going to be a clerical heaven, clerical error in heaven, and that Peter was going to forget my name, presuming there's a St. Peter and a pearly gate and all the other things that probably aren't the case, um, or at least not the way we've imagined it in cartoons. <laughs> so, so if we get there and I find out that my name's not on the list and I'm not getting in, is that going to change how I live right now today? And my answer is no, because the choices that I'm making today, the, the choice to follow Jesus today, 
um, is transformational in my life today. It gives me a taste of heaven today. Um, so I'm not doing this because of some guarantee of where I'll be at some point in the future, although I have an assurance of that. I'm not worried about it, but I do it because of what it does in my life today and in the life of those around me. Now, ultimately, I'd like to say that I think all of us have had those conversations and questions with different people at different times, like, will this person get into heaven? Will that person get into heaven? How is this all going to work out? And as a young kid, I remember talking to friends who were not Christian, but knew very clearly that that the stated belief of many Christians was that they were going to the bad place because they were not Christian and that I or, or and others were going to the good place. And they would come and say to me, I remember one of my dearest friends in junior high saying, so you think I'm going to go to hell, right? And I remember as a kid saying, I don't know how that's all going to work out, but I'm, I'm just sure it's going to be fine. I'm sure it's going to be fine. And I don't think it's something we have to worry about. <laughs> now, I can hear in the back of my head, my my friends who would shout from the rooftops, like that was your opportunity to convert. But she knew the message. She, she was Jewish. She did not, she was not interested in anything that the church was offering her. Um, but she was concerned what I thought about her. And so my answer for all of us has been from that moment, really, we're all in God's hands. And that that's a good place to be. I, I also think I'd like to say that I'm not sure it'll be heaven for me if all of these beautiful, wonderful people whom I deeply love and in our relationship with aren't there too. I just believe that we're all in God's hands and that that's a good place to be. And I also believe it's not my job to sort out who's going in and who's going out. And I am not the judge and I'm not going to be in charge of any of those decisions. Thank God. God is in charge of those decisions. I keep thinking of John chapter 14, where Jesus says this to the disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you so. That, and I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. I mean, that's heaven, right? That's what I want. I want to be where Jesus is. And then he says to the disciples, and you know the place to where I am going. And I can imagine Thomas's response is, Lord, we, we actually don't know where you're going. And uh, how can we know the way? And maybe that's all of us in these moments when we're trying to answer these questions for ourselves, for loved ones, for little kids. I don't, I don't always know the way. I don't know where I'm going. No way. Where are you going and how do I get there? Can we ask Siri? Like, is there a GPS direction route? And Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me and if you know me then you will know my father also and from now on you do know him and have seen him and jesus is teaching us here that jesus is the way to the father and i don't think that this only means that this is about salvation about where we go after we die and all of that i think that it also at least more importantly for me right now means that through jesus i know the father and that when Jesus comes and lives 2,000 years ago and is also alive and present today in our life, and when we see these things from scripture, from experience, from study, and all of that, when we seek to understand, we start to know more of who the Father is through the love that Christ demonstrates for us and for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
ultimately, this is my answer to my kid. Heaven is going to be awesome. And I know that because the Bible tells me so. Let's read Revelation. It's quite beautiful and incredible. But I also know it because of my experience today, because of what I see around me today, because of all that's good today, and my belief that God is the creator of all of that good. So if this is what earth is like now, in its fallen state where there's also pain and suffering and racism and disease and prejudice and bigotry and all of that, but it's still so good, then how much more wonderful and beautiful and great will heaven be when it crashes here into earth? And in the meantime, I'm going to spend all my days trying to live out what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to try to be a co-partner in that recreation in my own life and in the life of my family and my friends and our church and our community and in the world, as well as in the world that is to come. So as we look for creation being renewed, that beautiful, amazing scene in Revelation where it talks about in Revelation chapter 22, There's a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This is in the new Jerusalem that's come crashing down on earth. And on either side of the river is a tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit producing fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That image, that Edenic Garden of Eden, Edenic image that we see pushed forward all the way through to the end of Revelation, that's the image I hold on to. That recreation of the tree of life on either side of the river of life and the leaves are good for the healing of the nations. And the other part that I hold on to quite often, as I've sat by a lot of bedsides where there's been a lot of suffering, I really hold tightly to Revelation 21. When it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. I love that verse. And that's what we talk about in our household when we say, what's heaven going to be like? We talk about what's not going to be there anymore. And we talk about the good things that we are going to see there. And then we talk about how ultimately we're just all resting in God's hands and that that is a good place to be. The Bible is not primarily telling a story about individuals getting golden tickets into a world to come where they're saved from this world and they just get to saunter on into the next world as if there's nothing to be done. In fact, it looks as we read Revelation, there's quite a bit to be done in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. The Bible's talking about a creation rescue operation, a creation rescue plan, and we're part of that plan and we get to participate in that. And so, Sparkers, I hope that that has helped a little bit. And to quote N.T. Wright, Jesus is coming. Plant a tree. Let's plant a tree. Okay. 
Let's move to communion together. And if you have additional questions, we'll be meeting this Wednesday as we continue to try to wrestle and talk through all of this. And if you have the communion elements with you, we will be here together in that process. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.